morning. All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. So we've been blessed by the Lord with uh, consistent Sundays in the low 70s. Today we have a nice Sunday that will probably end in the low 90s, but I'm just thankful that we have sun and no rain. God has been so good to us. Well, today we're going to be continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we started uh, going through the Gospel of Mark, and today we find ourselves in Mark 15. And Mark 15 is on the crucifixion. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard multiple sermons on this topic. Maybe you've read a book or two about it. Maybe you've watched a movie or two about it. It is something that is, is very familiar with us. And because it's so familiar, oftentimes the story of the crucifixion doesn't really connect in the way that I feel it should. Um, I read a story this week, I don't know who the author was, but he was talking about how when he was a kid, his, his older brother, uh, who was also a kid, was hit in a hit-and-run accident on the road and died. And he still distinctly remembers seeing his dad with the mangled bicycle just sobbing uncontrollably. It was the first time he had ever seen his dad cry. And so his dad took that mangled bike and and then a big property that lived on a farm, and he, he put it in a corner of the farm where they wouldn't see it very often. But every time his dad would walk by that bicycle, he said he would see his dad, he would see a tear appear in his eye or a moment where he stopped and paused, and sadness would overcome him. Because that bicycle reminded him of what happened. And he wrote this about that story. He says, may I approach communion in the same way. May the brutal death of the Son of God cause me to be sorrowful and remember the sacrifice that Christ made for me. We become callous to the death of Christ. We become unemotional. We neglect the gravity of what Christ did for us. And we live in such a way that we ignore the tremendous sacrifice that our Savior made for us on that day. So today, as we get ready to dive into... To Mark 15, I want to pray and ask that, that as we open this text and as we read what happened to our Savior, that we won't be calloused, that it won't be just the story that we've heard from the time we were a child, that we would allow the gravity of the cross to impact us on a deep level. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you, and today we we thank you that we have freedom together, that we live in a country where our religious freedom is protected. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. But also sometimes, Lord, because we don't experience persecution, because we, we don't experience this strain that many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience, oftentimes we lose sight of the gravity of the cross. And so today, Lord, as we open your word, allow it to impact our hearts. Lord, allow us to not be unemotional and, and distant, but to enter into the story and allow what you did for us to change our hearts, to change the way we approach today and tomorrow and every day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I've been reflecting on the story this week, the verse that keeps popping to my mind is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his 
only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Augustine said the cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached his love. The sorry, the cross is the pulpit from which God preached his love. Has anybody studied where the first time the word love was used in the Bible? You may think, well, probably early Genesis 1 or 2 when God created. He did say it was good. But have you looked at where the first time the word love is used in the Bible? Well, in Genesis 22. Now, because we studied this passage, I expect all of you to have all of Genesis memorized. But if you don't, Genesis 2, 1 to 2 says this. Sometime later, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac, and go to the region of Moria. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will, I will show you. And so Abraham took Isaac, and Isaac gathered the bundle of wood to carry the wood that would be the wood that he was sacrificed on. And when the time came, God provided a ram in the thicket. And so God provided a sacrifice to take Isaac's place. But Abraham was... It was this reality of taking his son, his only son, the son whom he loved to be sacrificed. Well, fast forward in time. God sent his son, his only son, whom he loved, to not carry a bundle of wood, but rather to carry a cross to his own execution. And this time, God wouldn't provide a ram in the thicket. This time, the ram was actually the lamb of God. Jesus himself was the sacrifice that would be poured out for us. Last week, we looked at the agony Jesus faced as he approached the cross. He knew what he was walking into, and yet he did it. And so we pick up in Mark 15, verse 1. You can turn there if you have your scriptures with you. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Although Mark doesn't record all the different trials... All throughout the night on Thursday night, Jesus was being tried in front of the Sanhedrin. They broke all their laws that they had in the Mishnah about what was required for uh, a trial. And then after that, he was brought to Pilate. And then we see from the other Gospels, then Pilate sent him to Herod. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate was confused as to why Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So we pick it up in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now the Jews had convicted him the night before of, of blasphemy. They had brought false witnesses against Jesus, and after they con convicted him and said he needed to die, but they didn't have the authority to do that, they needed to use the Romans. They blindfolded him, they, they beat him, they said, prophesy, who hit you? And now they bring him to Pilate. And they bring these charges. They knew it wouldn't work if, if they just said, well, he's saying he's the son of God. They knew they had to do something else. So they said, look, he's subverting the Jews. We see in Matthew. Well, he wasn't. that was false. He's opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar. Well, that was also false. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. He claims to be Christ the king. Now, that was true. But Pilate is going, look, 
he's amazed. See how many things they're accusing you of? Aren't you going to answer? But Jesus, in every step of this process, is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers was silent, so he did not open his mouth. Moving on to verse 6. That was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder and uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. You want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Barabbas was this notorious rebel and murderer. Now, interestingly enough, the, the word Bar just means son of. So the beginning of his, uh, of his name is Bar. Now, I've told you this story before, but it is worth repeating because I'm still upset. When I was in sixth grade, we do in middle school, Sunday school, we would have Bible baseball. And we had two outs, and the bases were loaded, and the person after me didn't know anything about the Bible, so I knew she'd get out. So I was going to go for a home run because I'm really competitive. And I was a missionary kid, so I usually got, I did good on the answers. And the question was, what was Peter's last name? I was smart enough back then to go, that's a trick question. They didn't have last names. Boom, home run. She goes, no, it's Barjona. I'm like, what? I looked it up. Bar means son, which means he was saying Peter, son of Jonah. That teacher lied, and I was out, and I was mad. But that, I'll bring it back. Barabbas, if you know Hebrew, Abba means father. Barabbas actually means son of a father. And Origen, one of the early church historians, said that Barabbas' full name was Jesus, son of a father. Jesus Barabbas. Now we don't know that for certain, but essentially they were trading Jesus, the son of a father, for Jesus, the son of the father. And in their rage, they decided to release a murderer and a tyrant and someone who was, who was guilty of all these things instead of Jesus. But Pilate knew why they wanted to do that. It was out of their own self-interest. So he's trying to find a way to get Jesus to be free. Verse 12, what should I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they all shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Peter released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. In John 19, it says that from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate, I don't have time to get into it today, but Pilate had made a number of mistakes and was probably on his last rope with Rome. And so if there was this riot, he didn't want to risk a riot because he knew the religious leaders were saying, hey, we're going to go to Caesar and say, look, this man opposes Caesar. He's allowing this guy who claims to be king to keep on going on. So as much as Pilate tried to convince them and allow the crowd to make the decision for him so he didn't have to do it, he wasn't able to do that. And so it says he had Jesus flogged. Now, if you know anything about flogging, it's, it's not pleasant. Um, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of Christ, this is the moment that brings me the most 
hardship to watch. So they would take uh, these sticks with, with um, on, on the leather ropes, and on the end of the ropes they would have uh, bones and glass and sometimes nails and different things. And so they would strip the person naked. They would uh, hold their have their hands tied and bound, and they'd whip them. And as the, those bones and other things stuck under the skin, it would pull it off, and it was just a brutal form of torture. The, the Romans called it the half-death, because many people would actually die in the process of that beating. And I've heard that a million times, and I've heard the description, but just the picture our Savior being beaten. Picture that before the creation of the world, before God ever said, let there be light, Jesus knew in the moment of creation that he was going to be brutally beaten. It was so bad that it would often expose the organs and even expose the bones. And we know Jesus was beaten horribly during this because he only lasted a few hours on the cross. And the cross would cause suffocation it would take sometimes days to die but Christ died in a few hours because how brutally he was beaten during this time so we know from John that after the flogging Pilate brought Jesus before the people and said behold the man he was hoping as he was so brutally beaten that the people would look at Jesus and say okay that's enough that's enough you don't need to do any more but the crowd yelled crucify him Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They were acting like they were worshiping him. And when they had mocked him, they took off his purple robe and put on his on him. Then they took him out to crucify him. Once again before the foundation of the world, before Jesus created. For he said, let there be light. He knew that he was going to be brutally beaten and murdered. And yet he chose to still create. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each other would get. Mark decides to mention that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. We know Mark writes his gospel to the Christians in Rome. At the end of Romans, which is Paul's gospel, Rufus is mentioned. Um, we're not sure it's the same person, but maybe that's why Mark decides to mention they become prominent Christian figures. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That was a that was basically a way to, to dull the pain, and Jesus refused it. He chose to take the full pain of the cross, to not have anything that would keep him from pain. And just like the prophecy would be fulfilled, they divided up his clothes and cast lots to see who would get it. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Your passage might say it was the, the third hour. So the NIV estimates, you know, the sun, they, they go by the sun rising. If the sun rises around 6 a.m. at that time of year, then the third hour would be 9 a.m. So that's, 
your translation has the third hour, the, the sixth hour. The NIV is just kind of taking that third hour and saying six plus three equals nine. Uh, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of charge against him was the king of the Jews. Despite the, the pushback from the Sanhedrin we see in the other passages, he kept that. The king of Jews. Not the one who claimed to be the king of Jews, but Pilate kept it. The king of the Jews. Verse 27, they crucified true rebels with him. One on his right and one on his left. Now if you're reading the NIV or the ESV or some other modern translations, you might notice that verse 29 is just skipped. And I've seen on Facebook people say, I can't believe the NIV has taken verses out of the Bible. No, that's not what happened. And In your NIV you'll see a little footnote that'll go back and say what some manuscripts say, but the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have verse 29. Now if you have the King James Version, it will say uh, something like, he saved others, but he, or sorry, uh, yeah, he saved others, they say, but he can't save himself. It takes it from, from Luke 12. That might not be the... Anyways, so just so you know, when we gather manuscripts later after uh, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and a whole bunch of other manuscripts, so the King James was written in 1611, since then we've had a lot of other manuscripts. So that's why the Navy isn't taking verses out, they're just saying, hey, the earliest manuscripts that exist don't have this, and so they put it underneath in the parenthesis. All right, verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified him with him also heaped insults on him. So those that are passing by are heaping insults. The two thieves initially are both heaping insults. The religious leaders are heaping insults. It's ironic that they say he could save others. They recognized. They had seen Jesus' miracles. They recognized that Jesus could save others. He could heal others. They said, you could save others, but you couldn't save yourself. But what they don't realize is that in that order to truly save others, he couldn't save himself because he willingly went to the cross to die in order to save others. So in order to save others, he chose to die and be murdered to pay the penalty and punishment of our sin. They said, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and, they, and believe. But the question is, if they saw, would they truly believe? Hadn't they already seen? Hadn't they sat in the, t in, the t in the synagogue with a man who had a crippled hand and said, hey, let's watch to see if Jesus heals that man because we know he will because he does that kind of stuff. And therefore, if he does that on the Sabbath, he's breaking our oral tradition. They knew he had the power to heal. And yet, despite time and time again watching these things, they refused to believe. If he performed this one more miracle, would they believe? I think there are a lot of people right now, and maybe even people that are listening to this, that said, God, if you were to do this, I would believe. If you were to show me this, I would believe. If you were to answer this question, but the reality is that time and time again, God has shown himself through nature, through other people, through, different, through general revelation, who he is. 
and yet they choose not to believe. I ask you this question, what would God have to do to make you believe? But then flip it around and what has God already done that should have already caused you to believe? If he had come down from there, they would have made another excuse. They were certain, even though time and time and time again, they had seen Jesus perform miracles. Verse 32 says, those that were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. But there's something about the way Jesus responded to those insults. Because one of those two robbers had a change of heart. One of those two robbers recognized there is something different about this man. We jump over to Luke 23, verse 19. It says, Then one of the criminals who were, hang who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. How crazy is God's grace? This robber, this thief, this person who hung on the cross rightly because of the crimes that he had committed. In his last moment, he cries out to God, Remember me when you're in paradise. And Jesus, knowing that he had true faith, said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness fell over the whole area from noon until three o'clock, three hours. Now, in all the commentaries, there's a lot of different explanations of, of why that is and and what that may be. But I think the best one is this. In Exodus, when the Israelites were, were stuck in Egypt, the ninth plague was darkness. And darkness came over Egypt for three straight days. At the end of that darkness was the tenth plague. On the tenth plague, God told the Israelites, I'm going to send the angel of death, and the firstborn of all the houses will be killed. But if you don't want that to happen, sacrifice a lamb without blemish and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost and the, the angel of death will come past you. Well, here, three hours before the sacrificial lamb died, just like back then, there's complete darkness. Now, interestingly enough, we have evidence of that darkness. The Bible says it. There's some secular history that attests to it. Origen, a philosopher from the second century, mentions it. Tertullian, a Roman author from the 2nd century, mentions it in a, in a letter. Pontius Pilate even mentions it in a letter to Caesar Tiberius. So we have this evidence. But why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Jewish leaders, those that knew their scriptures, would immediately be transported back to Psalm 22, which starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then talks about exactly what is going to happen. And in your sermon notes, which I just sent out this morning, in the reflection time, it has you go through that psalm, Psalm 22. We don't have enough time to do it this morning, but to go through it and see the prediction of Jesus' death 
and what happened. And so he knew people would go back to that. But this is actually the first time that, that Jesus refers to the Father as just my God. All the other times leading up to this, he said, my Father. And this was the moment that the Father turned his face away from Jesus. He was bearing the brunt of sin, our sin, all the things that we've done. And this Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, who had been with the Trinity in perfect unity from, the, from eternity past, has now experienced the separation and the penalty and the punishment of our sin. The times that I have been selfish. Of the times that I have pursued my own gain. The times that I've done things that would make God cringe. He died there. Full penalty. Full price. Full pain. Full suffering. So that I can sing today, His mercy is more. More than all my sin. More than all my shame. When some of those near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling out to Elijah. Now, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Maybe they heard Eloi and they thought he was calling out to Elijah. Or there was a superstition during that time. Kind of how there's like the patron saints and the Catholic faith that when you're in trouble, you should cry out to Elijah. So someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar. They had that to keep the, the thirst, uh, to keep them at the thirsty put on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. We know from the other passages, he said, it is finished. What I came to do, my purpose on this life, on this earth, it is finished. And his torture and death, he had paid the penalty for our sin. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. There are four independent testimonies that bear witness to the tearing of this veil. It was 80 feet tall. This isn't something, you know, sometimes I'm struggling to open packages from Sam's Club. I'm just, <laughs> the worst now is like, you know, when you're trying to get the, the thing out to put the meat in and you can't open it up and everybody's watching you while you're trying. Anyways, sorry. So this isn't an easy thing to tear. This is 80 feet tall and it was torn in two. And we see that Tacitus, a Roman historian, talks about this. Josephus, a, Jew, a Jewish historian, talks about this. It's written in the early Christian writings and even in the Jewish Talmud from that time. The, the curtain was torn in two. What's the significance of this? Well, the curtain separated the Israelites from God's presence. And once a year, they would send the high priest, only the high priest, into the Holy of Holies to make a blood sacrifice for atonement for the sins of the nation. Once a year, they would do that. They would go into the presence of God. But now that curtain was torn in two, saying, Today, you can go before the presence of God. Today, you don't need a mediator because there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. When he died, he paid the penalty for our sin, and there's no more, there's no more need for all these sacrifices. We can go directly to God. In Mark 1, 
the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now here, Mark 15, the centurion says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the culmination of the whole Gospel. And the proclamation is made by a Roman centurion nonetheless. Now we don't know for a fact that this was a profession of faith, that he became a believer. You know, we know that their idea of God as Romans was much different than ours. But the point is, he made this proclamation. Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the one he claimed to be. Whatever it was, Jesus' response to the pain and suffering on the cross caused the man who was being murdered next to him on the other cross to come to faith and caused this Roman centurion in charge of executing him to go, surely this man was the Son of God. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? See, I think there are three reflections that came, as I was studying this passage, three things that stood out. First is the pain of the cross. The father watching his son be brutally tortured and brutally executed. I remember one time I, I had to take Joshua to the dentist, one of the first times he ever went to the dentist. And uh, now he's doing awesome, and he's great at the dentist. But that first time, you know, they were having to hold him down. He was crying. I'm in the waiting room, and I, I hear my son crying out for me, Daddy, and crying. And there was just excruciating. I was, I was sitting. People are looking at me. I'm sitting in the waiting room. I'm just crying because I'm like, I don't want my son to have to go through this because I don't like the dentist either. So I just remember the pain in that moment. But here's the father watching his son be beaten, watching his son be executed. The pain of the angels, maybe weeping as they watch what is going on. The pain of the disciples who had spent three years with Jesus, expecting him to be king, and, and watching the Messiah beaten and executed. And then lastly, us. Do we allow the gravity of the cross to impact us? As we celebrate communion, is it like the bicycle in the back of the, the barn? We stop and reflect and reflect on the gravity of what Christ did for us. So I think it's important to embrace the pain of the cross. But secondly, to embrace the encouragement of the cross. Mark was written to Roman Christians. And as they were reading this, there were ten major persecutions by the Roman government on, the, on Christians. And so as they'd be experiencing their own pain and their own suffering and thrown in jail and often martyred themselves, the cross would provide a tremendous encouragement to look and say, even though I'm going through this, I know that my Savior did as well. Philippians 1 said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you, on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. When we go through sufferings, we don't have a God who is distant, who has not experienced that, but we have a God who came and willingly entered into suffering Himself. Third thing is the challenge of the cross. The challenge of the cross. Who do you think Jesus is? 
Are you waiting to believe in Jesus until he shows you something? Are you like the religious leaders who say, hey, come down from the cross, Jesus, and if you do that, I'll believe. Even though time and time and time again he had done miracle after miracle after miracle. And they said, nope, I'm good. I don't believe that. What is it going to take for you to believe? I would ask you today to look at the cross of Jesus. To look at what he did for you. Next week we're going to talk about the evidence of the resurrection. How we can know with confidence that this really legitimately happened. And we can look at other sources outside of the scriptures to show that this event was real. And it happened. That the God of the universe came down this earth and suffered and died for us. So, if you never put your faith and trust in Christ, what's it going to take? And I would encourage you to look at the cross. Second, if you're already a follower of Jesus, the cross challenges us to live different. When we look at what Jesus did, it challenges us to think, why are we complaining about our inconveniences? Why do we think primarily about ourselves? Why don't we take any risks for God? Why do we hold on to all our stuff unwilling to give it back to God? When we look at the cross, it should challenge us to live different and think different. It should apply to every single aspect of our life. We weren't only saved from something. We were saved for something. And Jesus has called us to live a life dedicated to him, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, he is with us always, even to the very ends of the earth. That's our, our running orders. That's what God has called us to do. And we can make excuses and, 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 and look at all these things and say, well, that's hard. But what Christ did for us was hard as well, and yet he willingly did it. So when we remember the cross, in a moment we're going to take communion. As we hold the elements and there's a song we played while we pass them out to the to the cars, and by the way, as they pass them out, um, we've socially distanced the cups so that you can safely grab one without uh, without touching other places, so you're not touching the same surfaces that uh, others are touched. Um, but as you as you do as we do communion, and, and in a moment when the music is playing, if you haven't grabbed one and you're out in the pavilion, there's places to grab them from. But as we do that, I want you to reflect on those two three things: first, the pain of the cross. Second, the encouragement of the cross. And third, the challenge of the cross. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today we looked at a story that is so familiar to us. For those that are in the audience, like me, that grew up in a Christian home, we've heard this story from the moment we were born. We've heard it on Good Friday and Easter and Christmas. Many of the times as we go through the different scriptures, and oftentimes when something is familiar, it loses its impact. Even communion, Lord, can, can become so familiar that it's just something that we do. But today, Lord, help us as we take the elements, as we have time as the song is being played to reflect on the cross, the pain of the cross, the challenge of the cross and the encouragement of the cross. Lord, help it to change us. Align our will with yours. In your name we pray. Amen.
as the band comes up here for our closing song, and we're going to use that closing song as a time to reflect. I just want to share, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've always been saying, Lord, if you show me, I'll believe. Show me. Show me something. Do this. Do that. And if you do this, then I would believe. I would, I would ask you today to look at the cross of Jesus. God has already shown his love for you. He's already demonstrated for you. And please, if you want to make a decision to follow Christ, come talk to me after. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to have that decision. That's the best decision you could ever make. I heard a story uh, from a pastor who was talking about, ironically, one of the first dates with his wife. They went out street evangelizing. I, I can't say I'm that spiritual. You know, we went uh, to Old Navy, I think. But... Uh, on that time, he was talking to this girl, and as he was talking to this girl, she said, I have all these questions. I feel like I don't know if I can make a decision until I have all these questions answered. And, and he said to her, he, he said, here, do you, does it make sense? Do you, do you believe? And she said, yeah, yeah, I, I think I believe, yeah. And he said, okay, well, let's, why don't we do this? Tomorrow we'll get together. I can answer all your questions. But if you believe that, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins? Yes. Do you believe that he rose again? Yes. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe you need his forgiveness? Yes. You want to put your faith and trust in him today? And she said, I said, I have all these questions, but yes, I'm going to do that. I said, okay, let's pray. And he led her through a prayer. At the end of the prayer, she was sobbing. And she said to him, he said, okay, so awesome. I'm so glad you made the decision. Tomorrow, let's meet up at this time. And she said, I don't have any more questions. Because when she believed and put her faith and trust in Christ, then all the other questions weren't that important. So I encourage you today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. Let's worship together. Go ahead and stand up.